Please be seated. And please uh, pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in us the fire of your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Our readings today, Isaiah 52 and 53 and Psalm 22, are some of the most read and understood words about Jesus, the suffering servant and Messiah in Christianity. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that opens with the words that the nation of Israel cried to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The nation cried. Jesus uses those same words as he's crying out from the cross for himself, the nation of Israel, and for all suffering humanity. Pope Benedict's words are helpful here. God is with the suffering. The psalm goes on to vividly describe what circumstances the Messiah would endure in order to be found righteous by God and ultimately rescued. It takes into account what must have happened to the human body during crucifixion, as well as as what Jesus might have thought, said, and heard from the cross. Our reading from Isaiah 52 and 53 then speaks to the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice and its effects on him, as well as its benefits for all of believing humanity. These readings are a foreshadowing of the truth that we now understand from this side of the cross and resurrection. And I didn't feel called to spend a great deal of time going through these passages this afternoon because I believe those of you that are gathered here on Good Friday are pretty committed believers. What I wanted to say to you today was about the gravity of the situation. You see, I believe for us regular attendees here at St. Paul's, we tend to quickly rush through this day to get on to the resurrection and Easter. We know he rises. We know he lives. We know he ascends to the Father. We even know that he'll come again someday. And we're so happy about all this, about the idea of serving the king, that we just want to get through this day and on to Sunday so that we can quickly get back to the joy of service in the kingdom. We get it. I think, however, we may get it too easily. And we may, worse still, not remember that what happened 2,000 years ago today has serious gravity. You see, I believe what happened 2,000 years ago was all about having the last word. Having the last word. On that day, our Father in heaven, who had given us free will in the garden, also provides us with the last word, if we'll take it. The final word, the last word, we all like to have the last word in discussions because it's a position of power. Parents are great at this, spouses, friends. um, Everyone likes to have the last word because we believe wrongly that if we have the last word, that that will be the agreed-upon position at the end of the discussion or argument. My last word. As in, that's final, or that's all I have to say. You know, the old adage, he who laughs last, laughs loudest. Its meaning is the same point I'm trying to make. To get the last word is to seemingly have the upper hand It's a powerful position. And let me tell you, I had a job once where I often got the last word. I was an employee kind of like George Clooney in that movie where he travels around firing people. And I always had the last word. I would look at people like Clooney did or Donald Trump did and say, you're fired, and, and help them carry their stuff to the car. So I speak from experience when I talk about being the person who got the last word. 
So being the person in relationship with the upper hand because of size, gender, wealth, status, intelligence, you name it, is a powerful place to work from. Ask anyone who has the lower hand. They'll tell you having the upper hand is the preferred position. Now sometimes we see this last word scenario play out in horrible ways in real life. When someone gets killed over their stated position or belief, think Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, people who were all killed in order that their words or beliefs would be silenced. In other words, their lives were taken so that someone else supposedly would have the last word. But we know how that, hap- we know how that works, don't we? After the person's life has been taken, the martyred person usually becomes more popular or their beliefs become better known and more followed. Well, that's kind of what we Christians are left with on Good Friday, right? Our Savior's crucified because of his speech and beliefs from that point on. People choose to believe his words, and now we have church, right? No, no, not the same. Jesus, you see, willingly gives up his life. The others I mentioned earlier had their life taken from them. Jesus is sinless. The others were great people, but certainly not sinless and certainly not deserving to be assassinated, but definitely not sinless. Like them, however, Jesus dies because of his words and belief, but unlike the others, he does something supernatural, something we don't believe any other human has ever done. He rises and comes to live not only at the right side of the Father in heaven for all eternity, as scripture and our creeds tell us, but he also comes to live in the heart of each person that claims him as Savior. So I believe our sadness today should not be totally given over to the truth that Jesus died. Did you hear what I said? Our sadness should not be totally given over to the truth that Jesus died. Rather, it should be focused on the mind-numbing fact that Jesus chose to die. He chose to obey the Father, as the Scripture says in Philippians. He who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So today I want to focus on pausing our lives and beliefs in order that the full weight of redemption can settle on us. And we've all heard Christian slogans, things like, salvation isn't cheap, it costs Jesus his life. Well, I want to see if for a brief moment this afternoon, we can put ourselves back in the place of the followers of Jesus at the time of his crucifixion. Because I believe if we can get there, then we will feel the weight of redemption and understand the gravity of the situation. We've got to suspend our 21st century understanding of our faith for a second to be able to go back to the other side of the cross. We have to literally try to put ourselves in the place of the disciples, Mary, Pilate, the Pharisees, the crowd, Pilate's wife, and we need to play over and over in our head what happened. What happened was the final word was given. Crucify him, crucify him. End this. Let us move on with our lives. Make this stop. We've all felt that way, haven't we? We've got a horrible boss. We've got a bad marriage. We have bad parents. You name it, what I'm describing is suffering. We've all felt like our will was being thwarted, and we wanted it to end so we could go back to getting our own way. We want the final word. The crowd there must have been saying things like, how much more of this man's crazy talk do we have to take? 
He's stirring up the pot. We need to get back to normal. We want what we want so bad that we're willing to kill for it. We want our way in life so bad that we're willing to kill for it. We did kill for it. We are hell-bent on having our kingdom come. Our will be done on earth and in heaven. We want the last word. And we, humanity, got it. Or so we thought. If he had been like any other man, we would have. We know that when a person dies, their tongue is silenced. Their words may live on and inspire others, but their voice and their soul have been silenced forever. And in reality, Jesus knew that. He knew that there was no other way for us to be brought back into communion or relationship to God. Our sin required it. As Tyler said last night at the Monday Thursday service, Jesus is our substitution, and he is also God's final and last word. You see, it's really quite simple. You don't have to go to seminary to understand the narrative. There is a holy God. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He has a holy son who has been in his presence forever because of his sinless nature. And his sinless nature alone in human form is the only sacrifice that can bring complete forgiveness of sins. So he must die. Our sins require it. Wow. You and I, by our very nature, are complicit in the death of another person. And not just any person. The sinless man God. Sin, you see, has two consequences. The first is the natural separation that occurs between us and our creator. The second is the problem that sin plays out on earth. You see, sin plays out, as we all know, in awful ways here and now. We don't have to wait for an eternity separated from our loving creator. We get a glimpse of it each time we sin here on earth. What I mean is look at the consequences that sinful human behavior wreaks on earth. Murder, racism, domestic violence, pornography, robbery, genocide, and yes, even those little white lies. They all have consequences here and now, some of them that we can actually see, and others that just wound us internally. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, noted, noted that Jesus suffered for both of these consequences on the cross. You see, the weight of sin was laid upon his human frame, and he was crushed under it. Our reading this morning in Isaiah highlight that crushing weight of sin this way. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And let's not forget verse 12 of Isaiah 53 excuse me, verse 10 of Isaiah 53. It's very important to my point. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But more painful than that was the separation that occurs between himself and the Father. It had never happened before. Jesus had never been separated from the Father. He was always with the Father. Why? Because he's the only one capable of that relationship. He's the perfect, sinless, obedient one, even obedient unto death, as I just read. He, he alone is worthy to call God Abba. He alone is the one able to commune. Our communion was broken in the Garden of Eden, remember? 
But here's an important point about that relationship being broken. Genesis 3, again, as Tyler pointed out last night, says that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, surely you will die. Well, we all know that Adam didn't die immediately, did he? What happened? Well, what happened immediately was that his relationship with God, which was perfect and unbroken, was now broken. He was, in other words, forsaken by God. Or to put it in simpler, his last words of, I'll do what I want to him, out from under God's perpetual loving care. Excuse me. His last words, I'll do what I want, took him out from under God's perpetual loving care. Adam's last word in the garden was, I will do what I want, I will eat what I want. And we can't forget that being forsaken is the necessary consequence of sin. For a man to be forsaken by God is the penalty that naturally and inevitably follows upon his breaking the relationship with God. What is death then? Only the natural passing of someone's life? No way. You see, death, as Jesus knows it, is separation from God. Remember that line? But in the day that he ate of the forbidden fruit? Well, Jesus knows Adam did die. He died by being separated from God. That should be our new definition of death, separation from God. The problem I think we all have is that we don't believe that there are serious consequences to our actions because we don't understand the biggest consequence of all. The biggest consequence of all is the penalty for sin, as I've said, being separated from our loving creator. And not just being thrown out of the garden, not even the end of life here, but worse, the effect of sin, and Jesus knows this, is not being in relationship with the one alone who intimately knows us and loves us. That's the consequence that Jesus experiences when we hear him cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the cry from the cross by Jesus is not one based solely on his physical pain. Although no doubt they were, the pain was intense. But the cry stems from a far more painful consequence of sin, separation from the Father. Jesus understands the gravity of the situation. The consequence of sin is that he and his Father are not together. No connection to the Father, no real life. That's the worst thing. This life and death here are but shadows of eternity since the fall. Jesus knows that the worst thing could happen. Worse than being beaten, worse than being betrayed by loved ones, abandoned, mocked, spit at, and had crowns pressed down on his head, nailed to a cross, worse than all of that physical and mental mistreatment, was the pain of not being in relationship with the Father. Remember, too, that one of the divine truths is that eternal oneness of God was never broken, but Jesus on the cross is allowed to feel fully and experience completely human separation. It's a divine mystery, but it is the truth. So this afternoon, remember the pain of being separated from the Father because we demand to have the last word. Also, too, remember the words of Spurgeon, which are good news to us who are beginning to feel guilty because that's not my point. Guilt doesn't do us any good. Spurgeon wrote these words of truth that I hope you take with you into Easter. God will never punish us for the same offense for which Jesus died. God will never punish us for the same offense for which Jesus died. Remember that Jesus suffered not only from sin, but for sin. He was a victim in our place, but an innocent one. Suffering the full penalty 
which we ought to be suffering, which he doesn't deserve. God, you see, will never forsake us because he already forsook his son on our behalf. I will not suffer for my sin. Jesus has suffered to the full in my place. Yes, he suffered so far as to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, we hide kind of behind this wall of Jesus, if you will. It's, it's kind of like in one of those scary movies where Jesus is standing at the door of the basement and he looks at each one of us and says, No matter what you hear coming from the other side of this door, don't open it. And then he waves goodbye or he kisses us and he closes the door and goes downstairs and he takes that horrible, ugly, awful death while we hide safely behind the other door. You see, his power is manifested in the overcoming of death and in the rising to new life. He, Jesus, lives so that we who are in him, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we live too. I want you to remember that Spurgeon quote. And the final thing I want to leave you with is from the beginning of the sermon. It's the idea that we have to have the last word. Actually, I hinted at it earlier. God in his mercy has provided the last word that leads to eternal life and relationship with him. We all know it. We all know the last word. It's Jesus. Will you say it with me a second time? It's Jesus. Jesus. The beginning and the end. He is the true last word. And he will have the last word on sin and on death as we will celebrate in three days. But today, let's not be in a hurry to rush to resurrection. Let's dwell for a time in our sin nature that can only be overcome by the sinless one, the last word, Jesus. Amen. Amen.